up uh, section conversion, which is repentance and faith. We're going to treat uh, those two uh, subjects as follow uh, as uh, opposite sides of the same coin. Let's start with Augustus Strong's uh, definition here. Conversion is that voluntary change in the mind of the sinner which he turns on the one hand from sin and on the other hand to Christ. The former or negative element in, con in, uh, in conversion, namely the turning from sin, we denominate repentance. The latter or positive element in conversion, namely the turning to Christ, we denominate faith. And by the way, let me point out right here as we're getting going that those two concepts appear together in Scripture on several occasions. You remember just, for instance, Paul's statement to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, or 1 rather, in verse 9, they themselves show what manner of entering in we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Or uh, Acts chapter 20, where Paul is bidding farewell to the elders at Ephesus, and he says, I held... I held back nothing that was profitable from you, but have taught you, and testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that statement that I have referred to, let's take one more look at it. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas in, in, uh, in Lystra, and in Acts chapter 14 and verse 15, and here they are with an absolutely total pagan crowd. And they've got to start from the ground up with the gospel. This is not a Jewish synagogue where people know the Old Testament scriptures. And when they're ready to do sacrifice to them, Paul and Barnabas run into the crowd. And notice what they say. Uh, verse 15, saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God. And so my point is that it is not arbitrary. Some theologian a long time ago didn't decide, let's put these things together. Follow me? These, these, these are things that are found together in Scripture. And they are found together in the evangelistic preaching in Scripture. They are found together in the discipleship material in Scripture. They are found together in Acts where Paul is biographically looking back over his ministry. And, uh, and he is, um, and he is uh, reviewing uh, his ministry there. So they, they, are, they are proofs that that go together and we're not being arbitrary when we put them together. Now, the New Testament word for, conver for conversion is either strepho or it's compound epistrepho. And either Greek word carries the meaning to turn around, to change direction, to change one's mind or course of action, to experience inward change. And in reference to salvation proper, the Holy Spirit uses it in uh, that series of, uh, of, uh, of passages. Maybe the, 
let's let's look at two of them. Uh, turn to Acts three nineteen, will you please? This is this is Peter at the um, at the temple, and I'm I'm pulling out just a couple of representative usages here. But uh, as as Peter has, the uh, the lame man has been healed here, and after Peter has preached. He says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. That idea of being converted, that, that idea of, of the turning of being, of being changed. And uh, repentance is a part of conversion also. Peter said, Repent and be converted. The word is also used sometimes of the restoration of an erring brother. In Luke 22, 32, and in James 5, 19 and 20, let him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sin. Those passages are outside this discussion. I want to center on conversion as it deals with salvation. We're going to follow this common approach typified by strong and treat repentance and faith as two sides of the same transaction. Now, the word repentance, and there has been from time to time, I've been aware of it the last 35 years. Uh, I'm sure it was before then. But there has been from time to time a real minimizing of repentance. And I want us to be sure we get the biblical balance uh, as we deal with it uh, here. Uh, the Old Testament uses two major words for repentance. Uh, the word naham means to be sorry, uh, to suffer grief, repent of one's own doings. It's translated 40 times as repent. And then the word shuv means to turn back Return. The word is translated turn 185 times. It's translated turn again 369 times. It's translated repent just three times. By the way, that word, uh, it, it is a word that very simply means to turn. If you walk out here and decide you're going to come back and you turn to come back, you have done a shoe. It's, it's, it's just that simple. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's that much of a word. It's got several different um, several different spiritual contexts. Let me give you two that I remember just off the top of my head. Psalm 19. Is it verse 7 where David begins to talk about the law of the Lord uh, in the 19th Psalm? I believe that's the verse. Got it? Uh, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. And that's the word choose to turn. The other place where you find it, and you've all memorized this at one time or another, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. What's the next phrase? He restoreth my soul. And the word to restore in Psalm 23 and verse 3 is that word to shoe or shoe the term. So it's it's used in a number of uh, it's used in a number 
of context. Now, the New Testament uses two major words for repentance, and they are, you will see, uh, in the same family. The first word is the word metamelamai, uh, which means to have regrets about something in the sense one wishes it could be undone, to change one's mind, to have second thoughts. And then the other word is metanaeo, is used 60 times as a verb and noun, and it, metanoia, I think, is the, uh, is the noun, and it means to change one's mind, feel remorse, repent, be converted. Now, let's take a look at some important facts about the use of these words. Metamelami describes an emotional element always found in repentance, but which does not always lead to repentance which alone does not always lead to repentance. It did here, Matthew 21. Uh, let's take a look at that passage. I don't remember. I didn't get a look at that earlier this morning. Uh, Matthew 21.9? Oh, Matthew 21.29. That helps. Uh, yes, Jesus uh, telling the parable here of the man that had two sons that go to work in my vineyard, he answered and said, I will not, but after he repented and went. So uh, there it did lead to real change, but Judas did not genuinely repent. Genesis, or Matthew 27 and verse 3. Metaneo describes true repentance in the New Testament sense and is used in two different times, types of experience. A person comes to Christ for salvation, Acts 3.19, repent, be converted. Christians are called upon to repent and be, be restored. Uh, that is, uh, is that the letter to the church at, which church is that? Repent and do the first works. Uh, I don't remember which of those, uh, which, which of the churches it is. I guess well, this is the church of the Laodiceans. And uh, they were called upon, the Lord called upon them to repent and do their first work. So it's used in either reference to salvation or to a Christian repenting at some point. Now, Scripture also describes the nature of true repentance. And this is the place where we have to be careful and where we have to be precise. The essence of true repentance is a change of mind. And having said that, that's biblically true. The change of mind will result in a change of direction. That's what often gets missed. The negative aspect is a turn of the mind away from sin. Hebrews 6 1, Revelation 9 20. The positive aspect is a turning toward God. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. And both are implied, as I made reference to 1 Thessalonians 1 9 a little while ago, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 20, uh, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, this change of mind is preceded by convincing knowledge. And something goes flying through my head as I just said that. 
You remember our last session, we were talking about conviction. And the Holy Spirit of God does that convicting work. And it is the truth of the Word of God that will bring repentance. But that convincing, again, is not man's work. That is God's work. And by the way, while we're at it, well, and I, I got ahead of my own notes. So we'll just we'll just get there in a second, right? Uh, I've got it down, so there's no sense of no sense of getting discombobulated here. Uh, it's changed by convincing knowledge. Knowledge does not always lead to repentance. It is accompanied by a godly sorrow for sin. Matthew eleven twenty one, Second Corinthians seven nine and ten. Turn there with me, will you please? I, I want to. I want to stop on this passage now. Here is Paul talking to the Corinthians about how when he dealt with them so severely in uh, in reference to the man who was living with his father's wife, with his stepmother, that they repented. But I, I want. I just. Just want to stop here for a minute. He says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but you, that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner. Do any of my gurus happen to have a Greek text up? You don't need it. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a marginal note here in my Bible that gets it exactly right and I remember the Greek text when it says that you sorrowed after a godly manner it's literally, the Greek is literally according to God kata theosis, kata you, you sorrowed according to God in other words, their sorrow there was according to the character of God, it was according to the person of God According to what they knew of God, it was it was a it was a godly sorrow, and so uh, that's that's what it is, and it produces a genuine change of life in abandonment of sin and of doing of right. I want to again posit to you. I want to again argue that change is wrought by the Holy Spirit of God. This is not moral rearmament. This is not merely turning over a new leaf. That cannot be done in the flesh. It is wrought by the power of God. But when that genuine repentance occurs, that's what happens. Can I finish this and then I'll get to you? All right. What I was going to run to, and I've gotten my notes. Let's point out again this is the work of God. 2 Timothy 2 24 to 26. Servant of the Lord must not strive, but must be gentle unto all men. 
You know, I have quoted that passage, I don't know how many times. All at once, I'm going blank. A la Herman Cain, I guess I shouldn't run for president, should I? But anyway, 2 Timothy 2, 24. Here we go. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but must be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves from the snare of the devil who are taken captive of him at his will. Now you see there the mental concept of the positive, the acknowledging of the truth. You see the negative recovering themselves from the snare of the devil. But where does that repentance come from? God's got to give it. It is a work of God. And it will result in change. And now, Mr. Basher, you're up. Listen, and, and I'm trying to get to that by no. setting out. No, I've tried, no, I'm, it's a fair question. It's a good question. I'm trying to get to it by setting out the biblical parameter. <clears throat> there, are, there are a whole bunch of issues with it. The first time I ever saw this was back in the 70s. And I think the school is completely out of existence now. Uh, there was a school in Florida. It was called Florida Bible College. It started down in the Miami area and moved up into the Orlando area and I think is now long gone. And there were very good men who were associated with that school, who led that school. And as they passed off the scene, others came on the scene. And one of the things that you will hear in the watering down of repentance is that it was a Jewish concept, a Jewish term, and is not part of gospel preaching today. Well, let's ask the old Benjamin who stood on Mars Hill, and I don't think there was another Jew anywhere in sight, at least not that we know of. And he looked at him and said, the times of this ignorance God winked at now commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance is part of the gospel. And there is that acknowledging of the truth, and biblical repentance is that change of mind, but when it is God wrought, it produces that change in direction. That is that is the point. Okay. And and uh, the man is in heaven. I don't know if his booklets are still published, but did any of you ever see anything that Curtis Hudson wrote? Okay. And Curtis Hudson's view of repentance was that water. I didn't know him well. I did get to meet him a time or two. I corresponded with him. In fact, I corresponded with him over this issue very early in the, in the process. And remember that Curtis Hudson was what? A high school educated mailman. Greatly used as an evangelist. I don't want to take anything away from the way God used him. But he wasn't a theologian. And very courageous 
jumping the whole truck load out there. But he did. I think I've got in my files his booklet on repentance. And there has been, and of course, then uh, when the Lordship Salvation Conference arose, I don't remember if it was Michael Kaporis, who's not any longer on the scene, if it was Zane Hodges, but you know, out of that, out of that uh, milieu, there has come this idea that a person can, that a person can put his faith in Christ, never show any fruit of, of, of conversion, and die and go to heaven. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And all things are of God. There come a whole new set of priorities. In your life. Not that the believer is going to ever live perfectly. There come a whole new set of priorities. When Christ comes. Nope. question is whether the lordship debate plays into this or this plays into the lordship debate. Yes, ma'am. Oh, are you? Oh, oh, good morning. No, I don't see you, but I see your, I see your writing. Thank you. Good morning. Great. Hello. What time did you, uh, what time did you appear on the scene? You see it? I think when we get to the issue of faith, we will talk about the Lordship salvation issue. All right? I want to walk you through the book of Romans and a whole series of things when we get there. And I believe when we get to the faith side of this, if we don't, we'll stop and talk about it. All right? Good. Yes, ma'am. Yes. And 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 there are all kinds of people who are saved anywhere from four to forty who go through horrible struggles with that issue of security. Did I repent enough? Did I do enough? Did I pray just right? Did I trust enough? All of that, and and that I believe all gets aside in the gets set aside in the issue of faith. When we come to the place where we are trusting Christ and Christ alone, God saves us. Follow me. And again, and was it in this class I talked the other day about our about our son? I don't remember. Where, yeah, okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, I prayed right after he got saved, Lord, if you've done a work in his heart, I want to. And obviously, when we saw the town drunk in that same town get saved, the change in a four-year-old boy and the change in a 38-year-old man was a totally different situation. And we've got to understand that 
And I think looking back, you have to understand that in your own life. Uh, thank God you didn't come with the baggage that the older man came with. And the Lord spared you from all of that baggage. And there the issue, the issue is simply, and it is both simple and profound, it is a matter of trust. And I would, to, to put one verse on it for now, Sarah, I would, I would give you what Peter said in John chapter 6 when many of his disciples were going away. You remember? And Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, Will you also go away? And Peter's answer was, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of the Blessed. When we believe and are sure that He is the Christ, that's where the saving transaction takes place. Okay? He that believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Right? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? We cannot. There is no cookie cutter standardized formula by which. Seen people come to that point of I used I used uh, I was talking about Leonard Cox. He's the guy walked down the aisle just as clear headed and unemotional as you are right now. Twelve hours. Because we are all different. Because we uh, we are different. First time I was ever in the cockpit. This this he was there in a pair of blue jeans and a white and and we walked in and, and uh, Dick Johnston had had uh, had uh, witnessed to him before. And so I walked in, we're going to sit down and talk to him. And his wife looks at me, she's chip on her shoulder. She looks at me, don't talk to Sat down, so I didn't have the energy. Again, walking out. We are all just different in so many different Cannot, cannot single way by Christ. Uh, you could, Paul, Paul could have preached and said, if you haven't had a Damascus road experience, 
you're not saved. Well, then a lot of people out of luck. Shailene, I'm sorry I'm breaking up. Let me tell you what the problem is. Since I've got an IT guy here, he might be able to help me a little bit. But if I turn the mic up very much, then I'm going to get feedback in this room. You want to try turning us up just a little? Okay. Uh, and they're, they're having, oh, you're, he's going to do it in there. Okay. They're having to listen to me once, and I hate for them to have to listen to me twice. Is that any better? I'll try to repeat the questions for you. Okay, good. She's she's good now. Thank you. All right. So <clears throat> repentance is part and part of part and parcel of the gospel. And God commands people to repent. And uh, think of the Great Commission. Luke 24, 46, and 47, Thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins, forgiveness of sins, should be preached in his name throughout all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And Jesus emphasized that need for true repentance. So we must preach repentance. Scripture describes certain motives to uh, for preaching repentance. The great blessings of salvation. I'm thinking of Acts 2.38 there. Uh, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, of Jesus Christ, that your sins may be... Why am I having a hard time? Uh, yeah, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing... Is that right? Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? God's goodness and, and his patience lead men to repentance. In, Paul, in uh, Romans 2 and verse 4, Paul says, It is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance and the realization of judgment. At times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day in the which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. And then the chastening of God should bring believers to repentance. No question about that. Okay. And I will leave it to you to read Spurgeon's great old quote. Any other questions on the issue of repentance? All set? Okay, let's come to faith. Now, grammatically, the words pistuo and pistis convey the ideas of dependence. And the verb conveys several connotations as such as to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust, to entrust oneself to an entity in complete confidence, to believe in, to trust, to entrust something to someone to be confident about, 
the noun conveys the concepts of that which evokes trust and faith, the state of believing on the basis of the reliability of one trusted, that which is believed, the body of faith, belief, teaching. Scripture talks about the faith once delivered to the saints. We can conclude from the grammatical evidence that faith is reliance or dependence upon a person or thing judged to be reliable, dependable, or trustworthy. Paul conveys this very idea when he says, 2 Timothy 1.12, For which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And by the way, this goes back, Sarah, to your question just a minute ago. But notice where Paul's faith was. I know whom I have believed. This is not I know what I have believed. I know whom I have believed. I think when we get this idea that our faith is centered in Christ, that helps us a lot also. All right? Now, the theological definition of faith comes directly from the biblical evidence, and it ought to. Faith is that voluntary change in the mind of the sinner in which he turns to Christ. Note how closely strong relates repentance to faith, because repentance is a change of mind. Burgraff captures the grammatical elements of faith in his definition, says, saying, faith means confidence, trust to hold something to be true. Of course, faith must have content. There must be confidence or trust about something. To have faith in Christ unto salvation means to have confidence that he can remove the guilt of sin and grant eternal life. And notice again, David Bergram brings faith back to centered in Christ. Trust in Christ. We will later when we get into the sanctification subject, look at Romans 8. But why don't we, for right now, just take a quick look and see this, see this again. Uh, that, that it is God and it is Christ who, whom, upon whom we are relying. Look at verse, look, start in verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. I'm just, just going to hit that one thing. What shall, we, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Therefore, the question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And that brings into his conclusion, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor kingdom, nor principality, nor power, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And our faith has got to be centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
<clears throat> now, I'm going to walk you through strong. Brother Chip, forgive me. But let me tell you, uh, strong is not unique to himself. <clears throat> I believe just very recently I've read this in in uh, in Hodge and every once in a while something pretty nice happens to me. And Few weeks ago, Zondervan got a hold of me. They are they have just this fall published a new systematic And the guy who's the author of it is Michael Horton, who teaches at Westminster in California. And Horton is as reformed as they come. He's as Calvinistic, he is as covenant, anti-dispensational, you name it. And he is a very popular covenant theologian today. And his systematic theology is only about a thousand and something like that. And uh, they contacted me and wanted to send me a copy, and I got back in touch with them and told them that I can't use it as a text. You know, they give the professor a copy, then you and you adopt it as a text, and students buy it, and it's in their interest. And uh, so I wrote him back and told him, we use Erickson by, by policy here, and uh, can't, uh, I can't use him as a text. And I don't want to abuse the privilege of a free book. And he wrote me back, the guy wrote me back and said, I'll uh, make an exception and send you a copy anyway. So I have Horton's Systematic Theology. But I want to know what's the latest being said by the covenant theologians until another one comes out, I've got it. But anyway, uh, anyway, I was reading Horton about faith. Uh, he'll say these very same things. This this is very standard way to approach it. I believe it's a biblical way to approach it. But three elements. I, I like, um, I like uh, you'll see I use Strong's illustration here. In a minute. The first component part of faith is the intellectual element. Recognition of the truth of God's revelation or the objective reality of the salvation provided by Christ. This includes not only a historical belief in the, in the facts of Scripture, but an intellectual belief in the doctrine taught therein as to man's sinfulness and the dependence upon Christ. Several of the theologians will use either the Latin term ascensus or they will use the English word ascent. And I believe... Brother Ben, you raised the lordship issue, and I'm not going to the lordship issue here. I'm going to the anti-lordship side of it. I believe some of those writers have unnecessarily and wrongly watered down saving faith just to assent. You follow me? Okay. But this is a constituent ele element. Uh, the element of faith is expressed, this element of faith is expressed in John's record of Christ's ministry in Sychar. 
Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman who testified, he told me all that ever I did. And they said to the woman, now we believe, not because, and this is John 4.42, after Christ was there another couple of days. Others said to the woman, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And the big kicker in John 4 was Christ going to Sychar and the Samaritans being saved is that he is not just the Savior of the Jews, he is the Savior of the world. They, that, is, that is the big thing that John is stressing there. And Peter also revealed the intellectual element of his faith in Christ with his statements in John 6, 68, which I quoted a minute ago, and then he repeated it in Matthew 16, 13 through 16. And Mary also revealed this in her faith. The second constituent of biblical faith that Strong notes is an emotional element. This is assent to the revelation of God's power and grace in Jesus Christ as applicable to the present needs of the soul. Now watch this. Here's what Strong is saying and how it breaks down. Number one, I read the truth, I hear the truth, God sent his son to be the savior of the world. I accept that mentally. That's the first part. The second part, I come to the conviction that Jesus Christ is the savior and he can save me. That's the emotional part. Or I need a savior. And the emotional element is not saving faith itself. There may be a happy profession for a while in those who are not genuinely saved. However, there is a true emotional element in the in present in saving faith. In telling the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, Luke says, when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught, Philip, caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Think of that, riding down the road, reading the 53rd of Isaiah, confused in your own mind about what this means. All at once, here's this guy, you pick up this hitchhiker. And the uh, guy looks at him and says, see, you got the Isaiah scroll there. Do you understand what you're reading? And this fellow looks at him and perplexed, says, of whom did the prophet And this hitchhiker preaches Jesus to him. And the next thing you know, he's saved, there's water, he's baptized. And can you imagine Philip just being caught and drawn away? Not, hey, i got to get off here. Let me go. The Spirit of the Lord catches him away and he's gone. And the eunuch goes away one happy man. So there is that, there is that emotional element that will come. And watch this. This emotional element of faith sustains believers in the darkest and most severe trial. <clears throat> 1 Peter 1, 7 and 8. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him yet not, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, that we're throwing nets, not, yeah. not hooks. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. Right. <coughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, we've got a comment coming through here. Oh, his comment was that the other day I made a comment, Shailene, about um, about uh, when we're preaching the gospel, we are not throwing hooks and trying to to um, we're not trying to snare people. We are throwing out the net and gathering them in. And uh, sometimes, yes, it's fishnets. And sometimes, uh, sometimes though, the Lord sent through the net at the one guy, the eunuch. Samaritan woman, that was uh, that was Ben's comment. Uh, let me ask another question here about this. And this goes back, I'm sorry, a couple of you in Baptist history. Have any of you ever seen the film, or did any of you ever have the privilege of being in a service where you heard Georgie Ben speak? Anybody? There is a film that was done later after Vince got to this country. I don't know if it was done in the 90s. I don't think Bob Jones did it. I don't remember who did it. But uh, there was a film done on Vince and the years that he and some of his compatriots spent in the prison camps in Russia. Talking about this joyful element in faith, even in persecution, those preachers looked on those years in the gulag and they called them a golden They realized that in the middle of that, separation from their families, I mean, you know, Russian Baptists being arrested and beaten and, and who knows what all went on, that there was something of the blessing of God and God gets all of that. And they call those years the golden years. Not no, it's not the movie The Printing. Uh, this this was a documentary on Georgie Vince. She asked if this was the printing. I suppose several of you have seen the printing at one point or another. Okay. All right. Then Strong's third component of faith is the voluntary element. Trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. So this is the point where we come to the place where I will trust Christ. Surrender the soul is guilty and defiled to Christ's governance. This is implied in Matthew 11, Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, Strong wrote in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but this point grounded in Scripture is vitally important today. Here we go talking about the lordship issue. Uh, good, we've got 20 minutes. We can do this. Uh, perhaps the truth may best be seen in the way Paul relates the concept of obedience to saving faith in the epistle to the Romans. By the way, to get to this voluntary issue, not only is there the ascensus that I understand the truth of the gospel, and the emotional element, where I understand I need a Savior, but then the voluntary element, the act of the will, where I decide I've got to trust Christ. 
to see the three the three pieces. Okay. Can I use another salvation story to illustrate that? And I you have to forgive me, we illustrate with what we know. And I've told you a little bit about our boys getting saved. But this happened. I, I wasn't there to see it. We just heard about it. But this is our youngest granddaughter. And Emma Kate is eight now. I'm, if I've got my memory right, this was when she was six. And with all six of our grandkids, I'm, I'm so glad that our kids and our sons-in-law were, uh, were patient and did not pressure their kids into a decision. But Lissa had told us, I don't know, six months, sometime before she ever got saved, that Emma Kate was really thinking about herself as a sinner and that she needed the Lord. And she'd talk to her mom every once in a while. Well, one Sunday night, they were sitting in church. This, like I say, probably a year and a half, maybe two years ago. And the youth pastor in their church spoke that night and closed the service and simply said, if you're here and you're not saved, you can trust the Lord. And the next thing, listen to she's got this tug on her skirt. She looks down, and here is Emma Catherine Marie. Looks at her mom. The next thing, when the service was over, mom and the kids were back in the youth pastor's office, and it got set. But there is clearly that voluntary element where it's got to be done. I've got to trust the Lord. And so you have that facts, motion that I needed, and voluntary element. Strong uses, just a minute here, folks. Let me see. Uh, I think I've, I, I want to I stay on this right here. We're going to talk. Let's just talk about taking as it comes. I'm going to use Strong's illustration, an old boat illustration, but we'll get to it. The first aspect of trust in Christ is surrender the soul. And this, uh, this really gets to this issue, and I, I don't name the Lordship Salvation issue here. We'll talk about MacArthur in a minute. But Strong wrote in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but this point grounded in Scripture is vitally important today. And perhaps the truth may best be seen in the way Paul relates the concept of obedience to saving faith in the epistle to the Romans. Get your Bibles out. I want to just walk through some scripture with you. Now, <clears throat> I watched the whole issue with John MacArthur when it happened in the late 80s. And there are guys still beating that horse 
and still rehearsing that issue. And I do believe, I do believe that MacArthur made some misstatements. Go ahead. The Lordship Salvation. Right? I do believe he made some misstatements. And in fact, some of his stoutest defenders believe that after the gospel according to Jesus, he corrected himself in a couple of later books. And here, here is basically the issue. Can Moritz boil it down into his language and everyday language? I really think the issue, it, part of it was a reaction against what they call, what a lot of people call, easy believing. Easy prayerism. A quick five-minute presentation of the gospel, bow your head and pray and nothing ever happens. And there's been a lot of that. So part of the reaction was absolutely light. The issue, I think, is it got stupid once. And I've read, I mean, this this has its roots in classic covenant doctrine. And I've read John Gerstner's statements on it in the Gospel According to Jesus. And the idea is that a person in coming to Christ has to submit to the full lordship of Christ in order to truly be converted. And a lot of folks on the other side of it are going to say, but a person coming to Christ doesn't know what all the demands of Christ are. And I personally think, and this, this is my work, and I am I'm willing to stand by it. I wouldn't put it in the notes if I wasn't. It's grounded in scripture. But this is my solution to it. Okay? I want you to understand that up front. I believe if we rightly understand the nature of saving faith, we solve the issue. Because if a person Genuinely, biblically, trusts Christ. The steps of discipleship, the process of sanctification, the process of growth, the process of submission to the Lordship of Christ will logically follow when saving faith has genuinely Okay? Now, to make my point, here we go. I want to walk you through the book of Romans, and just watch how Paul talks about people's relationship to the gospel and God's manifestation of God. Romans 1 and verse 5. I'm going to take the time to read these verses to you. Paul says in Romans, well, let's start in verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So you've got the promise of Christ. You've got the messianic character of Christ. You've got uh, you've got His identification as the Son of God. You have His resurrection from the dead. Now, by whom, verse five, 
we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And when Paul talks about people coming to Christ, what is the term that he uses in Romans 1 and verse 5? For obedience to the faith. Are you all with me? Everybody's awake? Good. Okay. Now, keep your finger in Romans 1. Turn to Romans 16. Bring it up on Watch his benediction. See if this might not be an important thing. Now unto him that is the power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which is kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for what purpose? For the obedience of faith. Do you think Romans 1.5 comes under Romans 16.26? And when a person, when the gospel is preached throughout all, all the world, there are some who are going to be obedient to the faith, and some who are going to put their trust in the crucified risen Christ. Okay? Now, back to Romans 2, we will stay in progression. I just want to get both the beginning and the end. See that this is the theme in Paul. And watch how he, the illustration I have used is so with this thread. And this thread underneath the cloth comes up, goes back down, comes up, goes back down. Watch the thread. What is a sinner's situation? Look at Romans 2 and verse 6. Whoop, Romans 2 and verse 8. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. The sinner's condition is he does not obey the truth. He is obedient to unrighteousness. And he is under the judgment of God. We all together? Turn to Romans 5. And let's find it. Verse 19. Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Who was disobedient and brought sin upon many? Right? Watch the next part of the verse. By one, by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. Who's that? Right. Right? Now, he's going to get to the matter of Believers into the sanctification section. Now, look with me at Romans 6 and verse 16. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, 
his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. And we are going to, after we come to Christ, obey sin, we're going to obey righteousness. We're not under law, we're, not, we're under grace. Look at the 17th verse. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered. And the word delivered in the Greek is literally passive. That form of doctrine to which you were delivered. But they obeyed from the heart. They were the servants of sin. They obeyed from the heart. When a person comes to Christ, they trust him. And that act of faith is seen as an act of obedience. Now, Romans. And let's start. Let's start. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised the dead, that thou shalt be saved. And with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confesseth to salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Well, it's the same Lord over all, and rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then? Shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not believed? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, that bring glad tidings of good things. And all at once he turns to Israel, and what does he say about it? But they have not all done what? Anybody awake? Obey the gospel. Now watch this. How many different ways do you say? If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you'll be saved. Whosoever shall, whosoever believeth on him, verse 11. Whosoever shall, I missed verse 12. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him for Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You believe. You call. You've got to have a preacher to do it. You've got to hear the message to do it. Someone's got to be sent to those so they can hear to call on him. And the problem with Israel is they knew it. They had it. They got all obeyed. Am I fair in saying and in concluding that believing is obeying? You see the point? Saving faith itself is an act of obedience to God. That's why I was given grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. That's why this message 
according to the scriptures of the prophets, is made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And when a person puts his faith in Christ, he obeys the gospel. And if that first step of obedience occurs, when that believer is properly enlightened and taught, will he take the next step of obedience and follow the Lord in, in believers' baptism? And when that step of obedience occurs, will it not be reasonable in the normal process of growth for one who has already obeyed God in the matter of trusting Christ to forgive him of his sin? Will it not be the logical thing that he will obey his Lord in the steps of discipleship and obedience to the word of God? And can I impose, listen, when I got saved or when anybody gets saved, you don't know what crises they're going to face. You don't know if, if they're going to have to say to the Lord, all right, Lord, I'll go to the mission field. I'll be a preacher. You don't know what God's going to call them to do. You have no idea what the issues of faith, what the issues of obedience are going to be, whether they are the great big ones in life decisions that we make, whether they are the little ones in day-to-day. -day. Lord, you just put your finger on sin in my life, and you can have your way. You all with me? And it's not that I surrender to the total lordship of Christ. There's no way a, new, a person coming to Christ can understand that. But if I trust him as my Savior, if genuine repentance, if genuine faith, if the assent, the emotion, and the will have come together, and I will trust Christ, then Lord, if you loved me, if you stretched out your arms and you bore the cross for me, I will take up the cross and follow. Okay. Now that's, I am not infallible, but it seems to me that that is an issue that was missed in the whole debate, and I fear still gets missed in the whole, whole debate. Now, having worked through that and gotten all wound up about it, let's just review the notes. The act of trusting Christ is an act of obedience. And John McCarthy, let, 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 let's just read through this big section. Those who hold the lordship position essentially teach that when a person comes to Christ, he must consciously be willing to follow him whatever demands Christ puts on him. The lordship salvation position ties discipleship to salvation. MacArthur says, Contemporary teaching that separates discipleship from salvation springs from ideas that are foreign to Scripture. He's rightly reacting to the so-called easy believism of our day, much of which is a direct descendant from the new school theology of Yale University and later Charles Finney. I believe he misstates the case. I believe the evidence of Scripture is that when a person comes to Christ, that act of, of dependent faith in Christ is an act of obedience and surrender to him, 
Therefore, because of the nature of saving faith, discipleship, good works, and obedience to Christ, put the word sanctification in there, will be the natural result of saving faith. The saving surrender of obedient faith will naturally issue in obedience to Christ after salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We'll say more about this when we get to perseverance. Let me, let me stop here and say one other thing. And I Listen, there is an awful lot about MacArthur to respect. It comes to his church polity. We'll talk about that in the Baptist polity, and I bail out with it a long time ago. His book, Charismatic Chaos, any of you read that on the charismatic movement? Best thing in print. Absolutely. So let's let's be fair to the man. But when he wrote that book in 1989. And I have it home in Florida, in the library. I can find the spot where he made the statement. He was dealing with Matthew chapter 10, the passage that I just referred to. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Well, that's Matthew 16. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And he says, as he addresses that passage, he knows that that passage was delivered, was was spoken to the twelve when Jesus called them and commissioned them on their first preaching ministry. And he says, I know it was spoken to believers. I'm going to use it in reference to the gospel. Now, there are better ways to handle Scripture. Again, I want to be, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And there's an awful lot I respect about that. Yes, and I think, uh, what was the what was one that came out very shortly after that? Faith Works, I think. And, and I do not, I do not read him. I read all kinds of stuff. I don't, I don't read him regularly. And I do, I do follow pyromaniacs. Uh, those guys are pretty funny, and, and I uh, so so I follow I follow some stuff around him, but uh, but uh, I I don't read him consistently. But um, but at any rate, and he is, I think, and I say this to be very fair. I try to say it objectively. I think he is a better Bible teacher than he is a. And uh, and I, I think at times he, he, he uh, makes statements like that. And I've just gone two minutes late. I get to my boat illustration next time, and I want to finish this, and I want to get into the next section. I think we're making pretty good progress. I think if we push, we can make it. Have a great Thanksgiving. We'll see you. Thanks, Shaylee.